Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Scott Eyman, uh, who is formerly the literary critic at the Palm Beach Post, is the author or co-author of 17 books, including bestsellers uh, on John Wayne, um, uh, which is one of my favorite biographies. We, we talked about this a little bit last time, but we're here to talk about his new book, uh, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Uh, Scott, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, happy to be back. All right. So uh, let's I you know, I don't I don't like to ask this question uh, a lot, but I think it's I think it's an interesting one to get into here uh, because this is a uh, a topic that I think is resonant in the 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 news today. Why did you want to write this particular book at this particular time? Uh, well, the easy answer is it was a pandemic book. <laughs> it was February of 1920. Uh, sorry, February of, of 2020. Uh, things are clearly heading south. I had just shipped off a book about Cary Grant, and normally I take about six to eight months off between books. You know, I just I just lay fallow. Uh, but uh, uh, the, everything was closing down, especially libraries, and libraries are crucial to what I do. So I began to rummage around for something that I could do with libraries closed, which is a very short list, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a lot to do. So I was looking around for something, uh, archives that were digitized. And the Chaplin archives were digitized. And I thought, well, that's magnificent. I adore Charlie Chaplin. I used my entry level really into old movies as a boy. Uh, the problem was what hasn't been written about Charlie Chaplin, you know, uh, because there are dozens and dozens and dozens of books about Charlie Chaplin. And I know that because I've read them all. <laughs> and I've got most of them. And uh, I thought, well... I'm, that doesn't really help me at all because everything's been covered. So I sat there for a week or two and things continued to shut down and clearly it was going to take a while. And I thought, well, and I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And finally I realized that really nobody had written a deep dive into basically the seminal event of his life, his banishment from the United States of America in 1952, um, which was kind of the, the apogee of the, uh, the blacklist era. And uh, I thought, well, and I, just to make sure, I doubled back and, and read a couple of uh, David Robinson's book and, and one or two others. And I was right. Nobody had gone into any detail about it. It was just sort of presented as a fait accompli, you know. And I thought, well, there's something there. Uh, and then I had to uh, basically get the approval of the chaplain estate uh, because basically, as I said, everything's digitized. The entire archive is digitized. But if they approve a project, uh, uh, they give you the password and you're off and running, basically. And they never asked for approvals of any sort. You know, it was, it was here it is, have fun, here's your ball, run with it. Uh, so that, would, that took me about two years of just plowing through the archive, uh, looking for this, looking for that. And I found a lot more than I thought I would, a lot mm -hmm. more than I thought I would. And at that point, things began to open up again prov providentially. You know, the libraries began to open up, but I needed the Library of Congress. I needed the Academy, of course, in Los Angeles. I needed mm -hmm. USC, uh, and I needed the, the, uh, one other library, the Nixon and the uh, Truman Presidential Libraries. So those libraries I needed. And they all incrementally opened up just in time as I began uh, uh, closing down the Chaplin Archive, finishing my work in the Chaplin Archive. So it was, and so it was a, uh, it, it came out of uh, a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime crisis, basically. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, it never would have occurred to me to write a book about Charlie Chaplin and the Blacklist. Yeah. It, it's interesting that you mention 
that nobody's really covered this part of his his life. And I, I say that because I had always I mean, like, I'm not a I am not a scholar on uh, early Hollywood history, silence or anything like that, uh, or Chaplin. And I had always thought of uh, Chaplin's exile as self-imposed. I'd almost I'd heard it described that way by people. In fact, that, you know, he had he had left the country. He went to Switzerland uh, and he finally came back in 1972 for to to accept the Oscar. And it was a big moment. Um, but I, I had not realized that it was it was not self-imposed. This was he was not allowed back into the country. His reentry permit was revoked by Harry Truman's attorney general, a man named James Granary, uh, for vague reasons. Uh, a week after the uh, reentry, he was on the Queen Elizabeth uh, heading to Europe to open Limelight, his, his most recent film. Uh, he was going to open it in London. His wife, Una, was with him and their four children. And he was going to show Una uh, his, his London because she'd never been. Uh, his Lambeth, where he grew up, and then they were going to go on a, a couple months tour of Europe, France, and so forth, open the film, relax, because he hadn't been out of the country in 20 years. He hadn't been out of the country since 1932. And they were one day out of New York when he got a, a cablegram that his reentry permit had been revoked, uh, which took him completely by surprise. Uh, and he was thunderstruck, of course. Uh, what he didn't know was about a week after the uh, uh, revocation, the INS had a meeting uh, in which they kind of mulled this thing over and they came to the recognition that uh, if he decided to appeal the revocation, they'd have to let him back in because he'd never been convicted of a misdemeanor, let alone a felony. Uh, and they had absolutely nothing on him uh, to, 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 to mandate the revocation. Uh, the attorney general referred to uh, 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 menace to womanhood. That was his quote, a menace to womanhood, <laughs> a slightly Victorian circumlocution. Uh, but there it was. That was essentially uh, uh, what it was hung on. Uh, because at this point, the FBI had been, the entire security apparatus of America had been all over him since basically 1940, 1941. And he'd been investigated numerous times. And they knew, A, that he was never a communist, B, that he'd never been a member of the party, C, that he'd never donated any money to the party, uh, and, and D, that he was a kind of uh, very singular individualist libertarian. Uh, with uh, vaguely socialist sympathies, uh, but none of that is actionable, you know. So, but what he was was completely out of step with the uh, the moral uh, uh, ecology of America in the post-war era, and that was essentially what tripped him up. It, well, it that's wasn't 19, it. Wasn't 1934 anymore? Right. Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit because I there there is uh, I mean there's there's some interesting stuff in in the book uh, which again I did not I did not really know about about uh, his um, uh, shall we say uh, relationships and the the trouble that got him into. No, absolutely not, not just with the government with the press too because this is we, we're going to talk about the press here in a minute because that's that's a fascinating part of all this but it was that was what the press focused on first was his uh, dalliances. Yes, yes. He liked young girls. He liked young girls. Not exclusively. In, in a sense, I think historically it's probably been overemphasized because uh, uh, he had three wives. They were uh, all 18 or younger at the time of his mar the marriage to them. Uh, he was, there was a fourth uh, relationship that was considered to be a marriage but wasn't because they were never married. He was shacked up with Paula Goddard, the leading lady of modern times and the great dictator. They went through a, a Mexican divorce in order to imply... <laughs> that they actually had been married when they never had been married. She did, she, they just lived together. Uh, but it was it was it was protective coloration for her 
because she'd lost the part of Scarlett, Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind to Vivian Lee because she and Chaplin were, were living together and their, their marital status was uh, undetermined. Although they told the press that they were married, they never actually were. And Vivian Lee got it, which was ironic because she was presently living in sin with Laurence Olivier at the time. But it was not generally known to the public that Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier were living together uh, without benefit of marriage. Whereas it was generally known to the public that Paulette Goddard and Chaplin were living together. Mm -hmm. So Goddard lost the part. Vivian Lee got the part, which was good for film history because Vivian Lee was a better actress. Uh, but it was certainly, <laughs> I'm sure, a tough loss for Paulette Goddard. So... So, but but there were plenty of uh, age-appropriate women along the way too. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned uh, some of them in the book, uh, who, women who were in their late twenties and, and thirties at the time of their relationship with Chaplin. So it wasn't that he was exclusively devoted to uh, to young girls. It was he was uh, he was a true Democrat when it came, when it came to women, <laughs> a liber libertarian, libertarian in all issues. Yes, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Uh, all right, there's a, there's a line in your uh, in in your book. You're writing uh, here about modern times um, and the, uh, the the some of the some of the great sequences in there. But here's here's a quote. Uh, he felt the printing press had the potential to devour him, which feels very much like foreshadowing for what is to come. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about how the press uh, how the press kind of turned against him and how they worked with Hoover, Nixon, others in the uh, the apparatus of the federal government to uh, to take him down. There were three legs to this uh, uh, decade long. Uh, what, crucifixion is probably too strong a word. Uh, 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 this decade long effort to demonize uh, Chaplin. The first was the great dictator, uh, which he uh, started working on at the end of 1938. Uh, it didn't come out until October of 1940. During that entire period, America was a profoundly isolationist country, as was the American Congress. The only thing that turned the isolation uh, around was Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So until that, he's swimming against the tide, not only of the movie industry, who was not exactly enthralled with making anti-communist pictures, anti-fascist pictures, rather. Uh, he was also swimming against the conservative press, the Hearst Press. Uh, the Chicago Tribune Press, uh, the Daily News, all the, the, those conservative papers that thought uh, that sought to restrict Jewish immigration from Europe, that sought to promulgate the view that Hitler was not our problem, that Hitler was Europe's problem, and we didn't have to deal with it. And uh, 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 if he took uh, England, then we'd simply have to make a separate peace with him, and that would be the end of our trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chaplin didn't believe that. He believed the opposite. He believed what Roosevelt believed, Franklin Roosevelt believed, and he believed what Winston Churchill believed, that uh, Hitler was a mad dog and you, you can't reason with a mad dog. You have to put the mad dog down. Uh, and Chaplin's weapons were ridicule and satire. Uh, so he launched into The Great Dictator uh, and to everybody's amazement because it's not a movie that anybody thought should be made. Not the American movie industry, not the British Foreign Office, because Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister when he started it. Uh, the American public flocked to see it. The reviews were excellent and it made a lot of money because Chaplin had been right once again in that the audience had always followed him where he led. He did The, the audience did not lead Chaplin. He led the audience. Uh, he led the audience into feature comedies with the kid. 
he led the audience into silent movies in the 1930s after sound had obliterated silent movies. He still made City Lights and Modern Times, which were both critical and commercial successes. Uh, the audience followed Chaplin, and they followed Chaplin once again with The Great Dictator, even though people like Hedda Hopper prophesied catastrophe, commercial and, and creative catastrophe. However, it is the classic example of premature anti-fascism, uh, which did him no favors. Uh, then in 1942, after we were involved in World War II, after Pearl Harbor, he began making speeches proselytizing for the opening of a second front to aid Russia, who were our allies again in the fight against Hitler. Uh, this caused no end of uh, uh, outrage uh, with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. And that is when Hoover and the FBI began surveilling Chaplin intensively. There were agents at all of his speeches, Chaplin's speeches, taking down dictation about exactly what he said. Uh, because anybody that was sympathetic to Russia was ipso facto considered to be dangerously radical. Uh, Chaplin declared over and over that he wasn't a communist, but he was in fact sympathetic to communism because they were fighting Hitler, as we were. And anything, any, anybody that was fighting Hitler and anything, any, any, any tactic that could bring the war to a more rapid end should be supported. So that was why his, he, his stated reasons for uh, supporting Stalin and, and Russia in the fight against Hitler. Uh, it was at that point that the FBI got involved. It was at that point that the entire security apparatus of the country began surveilling Chaplin. Over the next eight years, from, say, 1942 to 1950, uh, his house was surveilled, his mail was opened, uh, his employees were all interviewed, his taxes, both uh, uh, corporate and personal, were gone over with fine-tooth combs, audited. And they never found a thing, anything. Uh, he paid his taxes. Uh, he paid more than his taxes, actually, uh, more than his fair share. Um, they found nothing, and they knew he was never a member of the party. Because by 1947, if you remember the Hollywood 10, when they called those 10 mm -hmm. screenwriters and producers and directors to Washington, and they had the FBI had the membership roster of the Los Angeles Communist Party. They knew exactly that everybody they called either was in the party by 1947 or had been and quit at some point. So this was a fait accompli. The, the whole thing was, 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 was set up essentially uh, for the FBI and, and the, uh, the uh, communist and former communist left walked right into it. Um, and they knew that Chaplin hadn't been a member as a result. But Hoover, it was a dog... It was it was a bone that Hoover would not let go of. Every every year or two, he would jog Richard Hood, who was the head of the FBI Los Angeles office, and a very smart guy and a very well connected guy within the movie industry. Hood was close with Cecil B. DeMille, who was very conservative, uh, and DeMille was his entree into what was going on in the movie industry and who was left wing and who wasn't left wing, uh, because DeMille had a lot of tendrils uh, throughout the industry. He was a very powerful guy. Uh, and, and DeMille and Chaplin were not friends exactly. They were friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple times DeMille lent Chaplin his ranch, uh, which was called Paradise, up in the wilds of the, of, the, of the mountains above Los Angeles when Chaplin needed a getaway, you know, because Chaplin didn't have a getaway. He had a small boat, a 36-footer that would, he would take to Catalina, but you couldn't take a 36-footer any further than Catalina. Uh, so they knew each other and they were, they were okay with each other. Although DeMille was extremely conservative and Chaplin was not, but on some level they communicated. 
Uh, but uh, DeMille was, uh, was Hood's guy in, uh, in Hollywood and, uh, Hoover would jog, uh, Hood and that uh, Chaplin wasn't really an artist, was he? Chaplin was really just overrated, wasn't he? And Hood would talk to DeMille and DeMille would tell him, well, actually Chaplin is an artist. <laughs> yes, he's very much an artist. Yeah. Now he's not well liked in yeah. Hollywood, uh, because he was a loner, uh, by nature, actually. Uh, and by training, uh, his childhood, which was catastrophic, had taught him that he couldn't basically depend on anybody but himself. So he never really did depend on anybody but himself until he met Una O'Neill, his last wife. Uh, it was all about, uh, he, he maintained, uh, uh, he had his own studio on La Brea Avenue. It's still there. It's now the headquarters of the Jim Henson's, uh, Jim Henson's company. Uh, he had owned 25% of United Artists. He financed his own pictures out of his own pocket. He was absolutely self-contained as a production center. He didn't take any studio money from anybody uh, because he believed that if you took money from a studio, then you'd have to take their notes mm -hmm. and, you'd have to, and you'd have to have meetings and you'd have to, to adapt what you wanted to do with what they wanted to do. And that he would not do. He simply would not do. He was absolutely autonomous. So because of that autonomy, because of that isolation, that, he, that kind of moat that he constructed around himself as a filmmaker, he wasn't particularly well-liked because the studio system involved collaboration. And Chaplin didn't collaborate with anybody. His films were one-man bands. He wrote them. He directed them. He produced them. He wrote the musical scores. He, he was the star. He did everything. If he, could have, if, he, if he could have sewn the costumes, he would have. <laughs> So he was not, people in Hollywood didn't really understand him or get him because he didn't want to be understood or gotten. Mm -hmm. That's a long and, answer for a short question. Well, no, I, to the extent that, and I, I, was, I was interested to learn this in your book, the, the family still owns the rights to his movies, right? I mean, they, they still control distribution. and Everything he made from 1918 is still owned by the family. That was his, that, he regarded his films in the way authors regard their copyrights. He owned them outright because he financed them himself. So he could own them outright. It wasn't, they weren't owned by the studio. He didn't have a percentage of them, uh, which was the most an actor could ever get, you know, or, or, or a director could ever get. It was a 10% or 15% mm -hmm. or something. He owned them outright. All he did was pay United Artists 20% for distribution. After that, he owned 80% of the proceeds. Do the math. That was the foundation of his money, and the money was the foundation of his independence. Yeah. Uh I want to I want to jump back uh, just a bit to to something you had mentioned, and I've talked about this before uh, with uh, Chris Yogurst. Had him on the show to talk about his book Hollywood Hates Hitler, yeah. um, which is a it's a fascinating uh, little little period in history because you know I think we all think now of uh, Nazis are invariably the most evil of people. They are like go to stock Hollywood villains, and that was most certainly not always the case, which no. is. Which no. is, go on, which uh, which is just really interesting, and I think uh, I think a window into uh, how how the country um, how different the country was in the late 1930s than it would be just 10 years later. Absolutely, absolutely. No, it's it's hard to overemphasize the the only as I mentioned in the book, the only people who were even dabbling in anti-fascism in, in Hollywood uh, at the at the time that Chaplin was making the Great Dictator were the Warner Brothers. Uh, Walter Wanger, who was an independent producer, uh, and Charlie Chaplin. That was it. That was it. Uh, Metro didn't Metro didn't get near it until late 1940. 
uh, about the same time The Great Dictator came out, but Chaplin's films were a long time in gestation. It was like birthing a hippopotamus. It took a long time because he was uh, OCD and he was compulsive and he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and shot and shot and shot and shot and would go back and shoot all over again. I mean, that famous sequence in modern times with the feeding machine sequence, uh, which is, I think, the comic highlight, one of his comic highlights of his career. He did 400 takes on that. I mean, it just, he went on for weeks shooting that sequence to get it exactly what he wanted it to be, uh, which is not the way movies are produced then or now. Even Kubrick, I don't think, ever went 400 takes. <laughs> Uh, so he was, he was, he was an absolute perfectionist because he could afford to be, because he didn't care about what it cost because it was coming out of his pocket. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's, it's really interesting. And the, the other thing that is, uh, interesting here is the, uh, you, you have a, you have a line from, um, uh, Roosevelt's, uh, FDR's, uh, assistant Harry Hopkins, uh, who, ins- who assured Chaplin that he did not, uh, here's the, the quote, quote, you don't have to worry about exhibitors boycotting this. He'll, he'll FDR see that this will be released end quote, which I, I like, you know, we, it's, it's, it is unusual to see that sort of, I think, uh, friendliness between Hollywood and a filmmaker, particularly on a subject as fraught at the time as entry into World War II was. Well, Roosevelt was fighting apathy. Roosevelt was fighting apathy, and he was fighting basically anti-Semitism, uh, which was on a scale uh, in America at that point that we haven't seen until very re- very recently. Uh, and he was aware of it, and he thought that Chaplin, because of his enormous popularity, which had not yet been punctured, uh, would uh, uh, the the film a satire on Hitler would possibly uh, uh, move the, uh, uh, the, the, the balance uh, a little bit more to, to, to Roosevelt's point of view about what needed to be done about what was going on in Europe. Um, and it, it had a great financial success and great critical success. It didn't particularly move the needle, though, in terms of Jewish immigration or uh, uh, feelings about getting involved uh, with Hitler. That didn't change until Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. The timing on The Great Dictator is fascinating because it really is in the worst possible spot for uh, for for Chaplin. As you mentioned, he was prematurely anti-fascist, right? So he so The Great Dictator comes out uh, a, a, at a moment when uh, D.C., the, the federal government is not super into or at least segments of it are not super into pushing for war. Uh, the public is very, as you say, apathetic. They don't they don't necessarily want to get into it either. But it's also at a time when uh, the actual communists in Hollywood were not super into it either, because the uh, because at the time, right, the, the Soviet Nazi pact is still in effect and it's still in effect until June of 1941, which kind of leaves him in no man's land. He was in no man's land. He was he was a voice in the wilderness at this point. Uh, in terms of the industry, and because the the, the left wing was not a hundred percent behind this picture either, uh, for all the obvious reasons. Uh, but Chaplin, as I said, he was a majority of one. If he decided to make a movie, he was going to make a movie, even if God Himself came down from the heavens and said, "This is a really bad idea." He would go ahead and make it anyway. For one thing, he didn't believe it. He was basically an atheist. He didn't broadcast it. <laughs> but he was an atheist. Uh, I found that in in the archives. Uh, he, 
and the audience that always follow him. There's a wonderful story, one of my favorite a- anecdotes in the book, that Stan Laurel told. Stan Laurel was his uh, 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 understudy in English vaudeville. And Chaplin was strange even then. He didn't interact well, really well with the other performers. He wasn't matey, you know. He didn't go out. He was rarely, you know, uh, go out for drinks or anything like that. He kept to himself. And he, would be, and he wouldn't show up until a few minutes before curtain. And it'd be five minutes before curtain and Charlie's not here. And he was the star of the show, start leading comic. Where's Charlie? Charlie's not here. Jesus, it's three minutes. Stan, put on your makeup. So Stan would put on his makeup and Chaplin would come sauntering in like 90 seconds or two minutes before curtain and slap on the makeup and take his position and the curtain would rise and he would slaughter the audience every time. And Laurel really got angry because he, <laughs> he one, he rarely got on stage and two, Chaplin never flubbed a performance. And what I take this anecdote, the, the, the deeper meaning of this anecdote is Chaplin always knew that he could control the audience, that he, that, he, that he wouldn't fail as a professional. He had enormous confidence in himself as a working comedian and his ability to control the audience and take the audience where he wanted them to go. That's, that's a, that self-confidence never left him. That self-confidence, and this is, he's 21 years old at this point, 21, 22 years old. This is a very young man uh, with, a, with, a, with a, a childhood of, of crushing poverty and, and, and impoverishment behind him and, and, and mental illness on the part of his, his mother and alcoholism on the part of his father. Uh, where he got this surety, I don't know. Because with his background, you'd think he'd be not wanting to, sh- the success would be crucial to him and he wouldn't want to do anything to endanger it and there'd be a certain insecurity. No, there was no insecurity as a working professional. He had zero insecurity as a working professional. His security was uh, social. He was mm-hmm. insecure in groups. He was insecure with strangers. And with strangers, he would do what a lot of comedians do. If I don't know if you know any comedians, but they tend to be funny. They do bits. They, they entertain uh, people that they don't really know as a means of seducing them, of re- make, making them relax around you. You know, uh, They perform. In, in essence, Chaplin would do that. Chaplin would do that. If he didn't know the people, if he wasn't comfortable with people, he would perform. He would do, he would play both the bullfighter and the bull. He had all these set party set pieces that he would bring out uh, as a means of, of relaxing himself and making him feel more comfortable and more in control, much more in control. If he knew you, but there were very few people that he let in. There were very few people that he was in, emotionally intimate with emotionally sexual sexually was one thing emotionally was another yeah it's 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 interesting that you mention him leading uh the audience which uh you know obviously feels right you just the record speaks for itself but he but he was um he what he did have a lot of respect for the audience's understanding of what worked and what didn't which i also found really interesting because you know a lot of the times you hear artists talk about well i you know if the audience doesn't get it, that's on them. If, right. you know, my, my art is, is what it is. And, you know, perhaps it's ahead of its time or, you know, perhaps the audience is just too dumb, but there's, there's a, there's a quote here when he, I, I forget who he was talking to, but he says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm terrifically influenced by the public. I have a profound respect for that. They don't know why they don't like something, uh, but it's our business to know why, which is, uh, I, I, I find, I find refreshingly uh, kind of candid in terms of uh, how, how, the art of filmmaking works, which works on a 
more emotional uh, resonance, which is another, oh, another thing he... No, he said there's another point. Of the, uh, it's a continuation of that same thought later on in the book where he says, if a film doesn't work, that's on me. If a film doesn't reach the audience, that's on me. Uh, and, and the guy, he's talking, he says, well, what about fic- What about novels? He said, it's different. Novels, novels are, are aimed at the intellect. Movies are aimed at the emotions. And if I fail to engage the audience's emotions, that's on me. And he absolutely understood the transaction. He understood what the audience wanted. He understood what it was his responsibility to give them, you know, in return for their for their dollars. They were supposed to be moved. If they weren't moved, it was on him. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk uh, just a a little bit about um, I mean, about the actual mechanics of him being excluded from the country. I mean, mean, it is it's the heart of the book. We haven't really discussed it that much. Uh, But what so what exactly? Um, how was he kept out? I guess is the best way to put this. I mean, he was, because not, a, it's, he was not a citizen. He was a, he was a resident alien. He had never taken out citizenship because he didn't believe in, uh, 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 in nationalism and patriotism. Uh, he thought it was the, uh, the, the Nazism was the logical, uh, gross extension of nationalism and that the seeds of that kind of, of, uh, radical nationalism were present in every country, not just Germany. Uh, and he felt the same way about England. Uh, a friend of his named Max Eastman said, what people didn't understand about Charlie, he said, is that he was born in England and made his fame and fortune in America. And he never became a citizen of America. If the reverse had been the case, if he'd been born in America and made his fame and fortune in England, he wouldn't have become a citizen in England either. He simply didn't believe in that kind of thing. He was a resident alien in America. Uh, so he, whenever he left the country, he had to, uh, uh, you know, fill out uh, a, a reentry permit uh, for the for the INS, and which was always, uh, you know, a rubber stamp kind of thing, except in 1952, uh, because by 1952, basically, he had this, uh, the, the premature anti-fascism, the great dictator, he had a paternity suit in 1942-43, uh, and he took a blood test because he knew he was innocent of uh, fathering the child. The blood test proved he was not the father and the jury found against him anyway, because, <laughs> because a, the blood test was not dispositive in California at that point for another four or five years. So a jury could overturn the results of a blood test uh, if they <laughs> cho- chose and they so chose. So he appealed the verdict. The appeal was turned down. So for the next 18 years, he had to pay child support for a child that was not his. Well, you can imagine how thrilled he was about that. Uh, but the fact that he had been involved with a 20, she was 22 or 23 woman named Joan Barry at the time, uh, for about a year. And the fact that he, and it it blew up into a paternity suit, even though he was innocent of the fathering the child certainly turned a lot of, uh, uh, I guess middle America would be a way of putting it against him. Uh, as the paternity suit was getting underway, he married Una O'Neill, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, the playwright. She was 18. He was 53, I believe, which seemed to offer confirmation of the worst things that were being written and, and, and communicated about him in the, in the uh, popular press. That they were married for the rest of his life very happily and had eight children together was irrelevant, was, was proved relevant in retrospect. But at the time, it seemed outrageous. So, uh, and when McGranery, the attorney general, revoked his reentry permit, he referred to a menace to womanhood. The chaplain was a menace to womanhood. So I can't prove it uh, because McGranery never really noted anything in his diary. 
uh, or his daily uh, his daily notebook about what he was doing. Uh, but I think it was uh, Chaplin's uh, sex life that actually pulled the trigger uh, and, and, and resulted in his banishment, not his politics. Um, but anyway, he was a, a day out of New York and he got the notice that his reentry permit was revoked. Um, and at that point, uh, he was a man without a country. He was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and he couldn't return to America. He could have, but he didn't know that, you know, because as I mentioned, the INS had a meeting a week after the revocation. And they said, we're going to have to let him back in if he comes back in. But Chaplin was livid, as the letters and communications in the book uh, uh, prove. Uh, he didn't say any of that publicly, I might add. Uh, all that was private, uh, written to friends like uh, Clifford Odets uh, and uh, uh, James Agee, among others. But he was livid because he felt he'd been badly used and he felt he'd been unfairly pilloried by the press, certainly. Uh, and by the Truman administration, certainly. Um, but he had a real problem in that everything he owned, his, his money, his stocks, his bonds, his film library, which was the most valuable thing he owned, his studio, his real estate, was all in California, and he couldn't come back. Or he thought he couldn't come back. Uh, luckily, his wife was a citizen, and they couldn't keep her out. So she came back and liquidated everything. His brother, Sidney, who uh, was the unheralded a hero of Charlie's life, really, is older by two years than Charlie, uh, also proved uh, 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 to be a complete loyalist and took the, his best care of his brother in those difficult circumstances as anybody could have uh, and helped liquidate uh, his assets. Um, but then he had this, the problem of where to live. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Because he's at this point, he's 63 years old when he's kicked out of the country. And he figured he had 10 more years, you know, realistically. He, was, he lived to be 88, but at the time, when you're 63 in 1952, you don't think you're going to live to be almost 90 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, so his brother suggested the south of France because that's where Sidney lived. He lived in Nice. Uh, and then Sidney suggested uh, uh, Switzerland for tax reasons because Sidney uh, had a fetish about not paying taxes. <laughs> uh, among his other fetishes, I might add. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and Chaplin thought about it, and I, what Chaplin obviously needed was to lower the volume, to lower the temperature, to be able to relax without being uh, uh, having to worry about the lunacy that was being printed about him on a weekly basis. And Switzerland, of course, is, is uh, also has tax advantages, but also it's very quiet, really quiet. <laughs> so he bought a manor house in Switzerland for $100,000 and lived there the rest of his life with his family. Um, and the work and his films promptly deteriorated. <laughs> now, did his films deteriorate because he was getting old, uh, or did his films deteriorate because he was completely out of the mainstream and out of that positive abrasion that you get if you live in a major metropolis like Madrid or mm -hmm. Los Angeles or New York, where you where the world assaults you with news and 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 various things, and you, you're you're attuned to it. And it affects your, you know, your overall sense of alertness and 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 the quality of your work. And Chaplin had always been connected to his time. If you look at uh, uh, the Kid or, or 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 Modern Times, or certainly the Great Dictator or Monsieur Rideau, they're all connected to what's going on in the larger world. They're not just he's not Red Skelton making funny faces, you know. Mm -hmm. He's actually connected to the real world in a profound way. Uh, 
and his last two films uh, don't particularly work. There, he's also he's getting older, but he's also you can see him kind of losing the narrative. You know, he's not plugged in in the same way that he was 20 years earlier with yeah. Modern Times of the Great Dictator. He's simply not. And I think Switzerland had something to do with that. On the one hand, it was absolutely necessary for him. It gave him a peace and quiet and uh, uh, relaxation that he never could have had otherwise. But it did cost him a lot in terms of the quality of his work. Yeah. Let's, I, I want to talk a little bit about the critical appraisal, reappraisal, specifically um, in regard to uh, his, the, the, the actor and, and director he has most frequently paired with, which is Buster Keaton. So in, 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 early on in the book, you mentioned, uh, you write that most modern critics prefer the apolitical, slightly autistic comic character of Buster Keaton to Chaplin, who is doing, who is doing something slightly different. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, to get your take on why you think that is. I mean, I, I, it's, it's something I've noticed as well. And it, 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 it's weirdly, uh, I'm, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here. It's weirdly almost pegged to a lot of the action stuff that we see now, like the John Wick movies, that sort of thing. People talk about those movies as Buster Keaton style, you know, effects, uh, choreographed extravaganzas and Chaplin is not mentioned in the same sort of way. Um, why is that? Why, why has Chaplin faded a little bit, do you think? Well, I, say, I think I say in the book that he's popular, but no longer fashionable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. I think that's true. And if the book does something to, 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 to reconnect him with a larger audience, uh, I mean, even if you show a picture of the tramp to almost anybody today, they'll say that's Charlie Chaplin, which mm -hmm. is remarkable if you think about it, because he stopped playing the tramp in 1936. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. So we're, mm -hmm. we're 80 years on, you know? But people still understand that that's Charlie Chaplin. Okay, so, uh, well, for one thing, he's emotional. And beginning in, I would say, it, it, to take the long view of humor, of, of American humor, beginning in the 50s with comics like Mort Saw, stand-up, where stand-up essentially replace, replaces visual comedy uh, and becomes the leading edge of comedy as opposed to film comedy. Uh, comedy becomes much more... I don't know if intellectual is the word, but certainly much less emotional, much more observational, much more bitter, much more cynical. And Charlie Chaplin didn't have a cynical bone in his body. Uh, he was very overtly uh, 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 Victorian in many respects, mm -hmm. not personally, not sexually in, per in his personal life, but he was very Victorian in terms of his work, in terms of the way he presented the world. Uh, he didn't he didn't uh, he didn't condemn uh, 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 people. He didn't laugh at people. He, there, there's a wonderful, my favorites, one of my favorite moments in city in modern times, we open with the factory and the workers trooping into the factory and the production lines getting up and they start to, you know, try to keep up, give it's getting faster and faster and faster. And then we cut to the president of the corporation and he's doing a jigsaw puzzle on his desk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and I've always yeah. thought, well, now that's profound. He's yeah. not being portrayed as some vicious iron boot heel grinding, you know, his heel into the throat of the working man. He's just indifferent. He's got his own problems. He's got his own worries. He's and he takes an antacid tablet, you know? He's, mm -hmm. <laughs> he's it's not that people are evil. They just have a limited bandwidth for other human beings outside of their immediate circle. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, it, 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 but he understood these things intuitively. Intuitively. 
Keaton is much more of a, and, and Chaplin's a romantic, always a romantic, and he's very emotional. Keaton is not emotional, and he's not particularly romantic at all. Uh, there's that wonderful moment in The General when he's he's he, he, he's cleaning out the cab of the, of the locomotive, and uh, the girl holds up a little twig, you know, because uh, they're trying to build up the fire, and she holds up a little twig like this, and he throws the twig away, and he grabs her by the neck and throttles her, and then he kisses her, you know? That's as emotional as Keaton gets. <laughs> that moment is as emotional as Buster Keaton ever gets. The whole point of Keaton is his lack of emotion. The whole point of Chaplin is the emotion. Mm -hmm. So they're 180 degrees from each other. They really are. Although they liked each other, and they worked, you know, Keaton, Chaplin hired Keaton to work with him in limelight. Mm -hmm. So really, he respected him as a professional, uh, as, as a fellow com comedian. Uh, but they're completely antithetical in terms of their approach and in terms of their outlook and in terms of, their, of, of the effects they wanted to get. Now, Keaton's a better architect of space, I would say. I love Keaton's camera. I love his framing, you know. But I got to be honest with you, I seldom laugh at Buster Keaton. I laugh at Chapman a lot. I seldom laugh at Buster Keaton. There's something chilly about Keaton. And I think it's that autistic thing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. If you ever seen Keaton's Go West, the cow, where he, mm -hmm. that's his deepest emotion in movies is the, is the feeling he has for that cow, you know, cause he doesn't want to see it slaughtered. Yeah. You know, he follows yeah. the cow all the way to Los Angeles from Kansas to Los Angeles or Oklahoma, wherever where the film starts to Los Angeles, to the city. And that's the deepest emotional bond Keaton has is with that cow in the movie. He wants his locomotive back. He wants the cow back. Uh, he wants to see the cow li live, you know? That would never occur to Chaplin to build a movie about a relationship with a cow. He'll build a movie around a relationship with a blind girl. He'll build a movie about the relationship with a small child. You know, that he will do. He'll build a movie around the relationship with a girl who commits suicide, tries to commit suicide in limelight. Those are that. There's a 180 degree difference in the their core structure of how they make a movie and what they're building them, the bricks they're building using to build the movie. So because of the move, the movement of hum of American humor from what Ke what Chaplin was doing to what stand-ups like Mort Saul were doing in the 50s and 60s which had a huge influence and continue to because every stand-up you see today is like Mort Saul's illegitimate child. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're they're yeah. doing they're doing political humor, they're doing humor about sex. Chaplin didn't Chaplin simply wasn't a particularly verbally funny person. He was visually funny, but you can't. I can't think of too many hilarious lines that Chaplin gets off verbally. He didn't think in those terms. He thought visually. So it's a quantum switch in 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 American humor uh, that continues today. So for those for all those reasons, also Keaton is dry. Chaplin's moist. Mm. It's very dry, very dry. He's like a dry martini, bone dry martini. Oh. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask then. I just one last question here on this subject. Uh, is is this why the Great Dictator remains? I I would argue the Great Dictator is probably his his best loved movie now. Right. That is that is the movie now that if you are uh, trying if you want to introduce a modern audience to uh, Chaplin, you you send them to go see the Great Dictator, and then if they like that, you you go on beyond that. But is is that why? Is the intellectual nature of that film why it uh, still resonates? You know, people say like, oh, he's making fun of Hitler and Mussolini. 
this is a thing I can grab onto and still, you know, recognize 70 years later, 80 years later. Uh, I get what is going on here. I get what he is critiquing. Um, as opposed to some of the other, uh, again, more, as you say, uh, emotional, but, um, uh, you know, uh, not uh, less intellectual work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I think, also, I think there's a certain skit quality to the, some of the stuff in great dictator, you know, it's almost, there, there's th- things that could be lifted up and done on Saturday night live, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and he had to figure out a way, okay, I'm doing this, the, 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 the these, these bits basically ba- uh, based on Hitler's uh, ranting and, and and done in double talk German, you know, act German double talk and Jack Oakey doing uh, this bombastic parody of bombastic Mussolini. So there's there's an element where an, a modern audience sees this as, as skits, you know, a series of interconnected skits. And I think that's one reason. And also because, I mean, let's face it, uh, 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 the subject of, of authoritarianism has not grown less pervasive in the 21st century it's only grown more pervasive so it's more the film is more relevant to a modern audience than city lights is mm-hmm. sure. so there's that no that 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 makes sense all right that was pretty much everything i wanted to ask uh i i always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything i should have asked if you think there's something folks should know about uh, charlie chaplin or your book or uh, just uh, the world in general what what should i uh, have I asked that i did not you you always ask great questions, son. You always ask great questions. I have no, I have no. Uh, I'm just glad the book has had, because uh, the book became, the book became more relevant as we got closer to publication because of the world around us. You know, where you where you could see things happening and feel things happening, and I was thinking, I wonder if anybody's going to notice, <laughs> because you know, when I started working on the book at the beginning of 2020 there was only one topic and it was COVID really. Mm-hmm. And, and everything else was subsidiary to, to COVID. Uh, and with the subsist, the, the, with, with COVID kind of becoming less of an issue, uh, politics had become more of an issue. And, and it seems to me that, uh, that what happened to Chaplin uh, has been echoed in the, in, in, well, Woody Allen's career, certainly. Uh, and, and, not that Woody, Woody Allen got kicked out of the country, but he was rendered uh, 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 hors de combat. You know, he could no longer work here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I still can't get my head around that. Of course, if he made better movies, it might not have been so good. <laughs> I mean, there's that too. Yeah. You know, it's like he's shooting rough drafts all the time. Um, but but the film, the, 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 the what happened to Chaplin seems to me which kind of was subsumed in the seventies when he had his big comeback and came back to America and got his Oscar and was greeted with this roaring ovation because Hollywood said, Oh, we fucked up. Uh, because when he got kicked out of the country, only three people said anything mm-hmm. publicly, three people in Hollywood, Sam Goldwyn, William Wyler and Cary Grant. That's it. Everybody else had their head down. They weren't going to get involved. So they made amends 20 years later, a little too little, too late, but okay, whatever. Um, but it seems to me that what happened to Chaplin and the, and what Chaplin put on film is only more relevant in the 21st century than it was even 50 years ago, you know? And I didn't see that coming. I didn't mm-hmm. see that coming four years ago when I started, we're almost four years ago when I started working on the book. I really didn't. So that's just, that's just 
the lay of the land shifting over 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 time. Yeah. Uh, again, the name of the book is uh, Charlie Chaplin versus America: When Art, Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Uh, author is Scott Iman. Thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sonny. Anytime. Uh, and my name uh, again is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at the Bulwark, and we will be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. 